well, Jesus Christ is the rightful king. And yet when he came, he knew that he would not be received as the king, but instead he would be rejected. In the parable we're going to be looking at today in Matthew chapter 21, what he tells us in verse 42 is this. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. And this came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, that initial rejection of Jesus as the king, as the rightful king, was so that he could become our savior by giving his life as a sacrifice for our sins as he went to the cross. Here in Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verses 33 through 39, this is what Jesus tells us. Listen to another parable. He says, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it. And he dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower, and he rented it, at, he, um, rented it out to, to vine growers, and he went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves, and they beat one, and they killed another, and they, they stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Now, this parable ties in with the one we looked at last week. Jesus even says, listen to another parable. And this one is also set in a vineyard. And again, the story here is about the rejection of the Jews and the religious leaders. He says that they reject his authority. In fact, they will reject him. And as he tells this story, there's no question as to who the audience is. Because in verse 45, it says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. They would have immediately thought of Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah chapter 5, there God identifies the nation of Israel, picturing them as a choice vineyard, one that God himself had planted. Isaiah 5, 7 tells us, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. There in the Isaiah passage, he uses similar language to what we find here in this Matthew parable. Jesus says in Isaiah verses 5, 1 through 2, My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around. He removed its stones. He planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed a vine vat, a wine vat in it. He expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Here we see God saying of the nation of Israel, he, he, he uprooted it out of the land of Egypt. He planted it in the choicest soils. He put them in the promised land. He removed all the rocks so there would be no hindrance to growth. He built a wall for protection. He built the, the tower, which was not only to watch over the nation, but the place where the crops would be stored because God said, I expect there to be an abundant, a great harvest. And yet what he received in return was rejection and rotten fruit. The same thing here in Matthew twenty-one thirty-five happens. As it says, the vine grower took his slaves and they beat one and they killed another and they stoned a third. What Jesus is doing is reviewing the history of rejection here in the nation of Israel. It started with his servants, his prophets that would come. And as you read through the scriptures, you see these things. The prophet Amos was beaten with clubs. 
the prophet Isaiah was sawn in half. The book of Hebrews 11, uh, 37 tells us that others were stoned, others were put to death with the sword. There's been an ongoing rejection of God's messengers, the servants, the prophets who would come who were pointing to the promised Messiah, the Son himself, Jesus Christ, that would come. And as we look at it, and we see what Israel has done in rejecting God's messengers and ultimately the Messiah, God could have brought about judgment to the nation. He could have rejected them. He could have removed them because of their rebellion. And yet we see he was patient. He was long-suffering, as verse 36 tells us. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. In the New Testament, more messengers came, more prophets, and more were killed. Stephen was taken outside of the city in stone. Numerous Christians have been martyred. John the Baptist that we saw last week, who was mentioned in the previous parable, the greatest of all the messengers who came, he was rejected. He was beheaded, killed. As we speak, as it says here, this group was larger than the first. It's not just in terms of numbers, but even in terms of prominence. This is what Jesus said of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. He said, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those, who, among those born of woman, there is not one greater than John, yet who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. God says, I sent my messengers to you. But rather than listen, rather than receive them and the message that they brought, and rather than receive my son that I would be sending, you will reject him. The rightful king has come, and yet you reject him. You know, in biblical days, a prophet would be taken outside of the city and stoned. And in our day, the opposite happens. We have supposed prophets who go outside the city and and they get stoned on some substance. And then they come back into the city and they spout rhetoric. There is no God. This is the way. These are the things. And what God says is you've taken and you've turned things upside down. We live in a world that looks a lot like this. As Israel is described here, how God has blessed it, how he has given them every blessing and rained down those things upon the nation and where they should have returned fruit to God. Instead, he's received rejection. How much does that look like America today? As you look at our nation that has been blessed by God, that has been given so many blessings, what has God gotten in return from us? We reject him. We turn away from him. Our society, our leaders, others are saying, you know, we don't need these outdated things anymore. We don't need God. Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers, said, I tremble for my country when I realize that God is just and his justice cannot sleep forever. Friends, that was over 200 years ago when America was much closer to the Judeo-Christian values that we once had. As we look at God and the judgment that we deserve as a nation and as we as individuals deserve because we have rejected him, we can be thankful for a parable like this. It shows God's ongoing mercy, his grace, his long-suffering, his willingness to send his son to save us. 
After all their previous rejection, Israel deserved judgment, but God showed his great grace, as we see in verses 37 through 38. It says, but afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will reject my son. They, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize the inheritance. You see, these leaders said, Jesus, the son, is the only obstacle we have to grabbing the kingdom, to having the throne for ourselves. In John eleven forty eight, the Jewish leaders, as they were wrestling with the rising popularity of Jesus, this is what they said. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. It was about them holding on to what wasn't theirs to begin with, the place of power, the throne. In Isaiah, uh, in verse 53, it goes on to tell us, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. There in John eleven forty-eight, They said, we've got to get rid of the son in order to keep the power. And so they decided they would reject and kill him. God's son, Jesus Christ, is the heir. We see that in the book of Hebrews in chapter 1. It tells us in verses 1 through 2, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. These religious leaders said, if we remove the rightful king, if we take the throne, we will have control. Friends, how many of us do the same thing? How many of us, when we look at our own lives, say, there is a throne room of my life. We picture it as our heart. And we say, rather than letting God have his rightful place on our throne, giving our life to God and yielding control, how many of us fight God for control of the throne? How many of us want the place that belongs rightfully to Jesus Christ? As you think about the throne room of your life, who is on the throne? Is it you or is it God? You know, I think about when I was growing up, did you ever play the game King of the Hill? Anybody here ever done that? You know, King of the Hill is where there's this pile of dirt or rocks or some other thing, and and somebody runs up to the top of this pile, and they say, I'm King of the Hill. And the whole game is about trying to get up to the top of the hill and push that person down, and you take control. And if you can maintain control as the King of the Hill, you know, you get bragging rights, and you get to say, I'm the guy. And so many of us do that with God. We've taken the mountain. We've said, I am the king of the hill, rather than giving God that rightful place. And yet what we see in this parable is God says, you can fight me for control. You can think that you have the throne. But there is a day coming when the son of God, the rightful king, will take his place. And not only will we be cast down off the mountain, but we're told that that rock will fall upon us. That rock will end up crushing us. Look at verses 40 through 46 of Matthew chapter 21. It says, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers, who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures that the stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone? This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. 
You know, it's interesting that as Jesus is telling this parable, he asks them, what's going to happen to these guys? And they pronounce their own rightful judgment on themselves. As they were the ones who were doing this with Jesus. As we look at the beginning of this chapter, if you were to go back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 21, you'll see that there Jesus came in at the triumphal entry. Today we celebrate Palm Sunday, the day when Jesus Christ came into the city of Jerusalem. And it tells us there in Matthew 21, 9, that the crowds were shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Those words that we see there come from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was one of the messianic psalms. It was one of the songs that were sung during these festivals. And when we sing the word Hosanna, a literal translation of Hosanna is save us. When we sing Hosanna, we sing it not as the prayer that it was originally meant. Lord, save us now is how the psalm uh, is actually written. What we are saying is, Lord, thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for sending your son Jesus who went to the cross to die, to pay that penalty of death that I owe and you owe for your sins. Lord, Hosanna, thank you that you saved us. And as Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, as the festival was taking place, uh, the crowds were crying out, Hosanna, this is the Messiah, Lord, save us. And you recall that the religious leaders were, sh- were coming to Jesus and they were saying, silence the crowd. This is blasphemy. Only the Son of God is the Messiah. Why are you letting the people say that you are the one? And Jesus' response to them was, if if the crowds are silent, the very stones will cry out the same thing, because I am indeed the Messiah. I am the one who came. And as we saw in that parable last week, they rejected that message. They rejected the message of John the Baptist. And here, they reject God's final messenger, the Son himself, as they seek to kill Jesus Christ. One night, there was a battleship. And it was sailing through the waters of the ocean, and and there was such a thick fog that you couldn't even see through it. And the captain was on the bridge of this this big battleship, looking out, peering into the, the darkness, looking for any sign of something that would mark danger for his ship and his crew if they were to be on a collision course with it. And as he was peering into the darkness, his worst fears were realized when suddenly he saw a light in the distance that his ship was approaching toward. The, the captain was named Captain Smith, and he got on the radio, and, and he radioed ahead to whatever this vessel was that was on a collision course, and he said, this is Captain Jeremiah Smith. Please alter your course 10 degrees south over. Now, to the captain's amazement, uh, the foggy image didn't alter its course, but the light held steady. And he received back this reply over the radio, Captain Smith, this is Private Thomas. Please alter your course 10 degrees to the north. Over. Now, he was appalled at the audacity of this message. The captain shouted back over the radio, Private Thomas, this is Captain Smith. I order you immediately alter your course 10 degrees south. Over. Now, the the oncoming light did not budge. And a second response came back over the radio. With all due respect, Captain Smith, I order you to alter your course immediately 10 degrees north. Over. Now, the captain at this point was angered at the insubordination of this sailor who dared to endanger his lives, who dared to, to not do what he was being told. So he growled back over the radio, Private Thomas, 
I will have you court-martialed for this. For the last time, I command you, based upon the authority of the United States government, to alter your course 10 degrees to the south. I am a battleship. Now, the private's final transmission was chilling. He said, sir, with all due respect, I command you to alter your course 10 degrees to the north. I am a lighthouse. Are you sitting here this morning thinking you're the captain of your destiny? That you're somebody here who is in control? That when you see that light shining in the darkness, when you hear God in his word telling you you need to alter your course, you're headed on a collision course with a rock that will crush you if you do not receive it, that instead if you choose to reject it, it will end in your destruction? And do you sit here and say, but I am the captain of my destiny? Jesus tells us here in verse 42, did you never read the scriptures? Imagine the religious leaders being told that. (laughs) Guys, have you never looked at the Bible, the Tanakh, the scriptures that you have spent your entire life supposedly studying? If you really understood what you were reading, you would know this. It says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. The stone represents Jesus Christ, whom they rejected. And yet that rejected stone became the very foundation, the very foundation of our faith. If you're using the King James Version of the Bible, you have a literal translation of the Greek text here. It calls that stone the head of the corner. The New International Version calls it the capstone. Some translations use the word cornerstone. When a building is built in our day, they put up a cornerstone. We're used to seeing these on the the corner of a building. And in our day, they're more of a ceremonial edifice. They often have the date. They'll have uh, the building committee, somebody who donated the funds, whatever it is. We we see it really as a, a part of the building that is more the parsley on the plate in our day. And yet, in the original days of building, the cornerstone was the very foundation stone. The entire building went up and was aligned off of the cornerstone. Webster's Dictionary defines the cornerstone as the stone which lies at the corner of two walls and serves to unite them. Specifically, a stone built into the corner of the foundation of an important edifice as the actual starting point of the building. The starting point of the building. The Apostle Paul talks about the church and how Jesus Christ is the cornerstone in relation to it. Ephesians 2, 20 through 22 tells us this. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You know, when it comes to the church, many people think of maybe the building we're sitting in today. This is Wayside Chapel, but this isn't. This building sitting at 1705 Northwest Loop 410 is not the church. The church is made up of the people in the pews, the people who go out into the community, the people who are the community of Wayside Chapel. That is the church, not this this edifice, not this structure that we're sitting in today. And what we're told is the foundation of our faith is Jesus Christ. 
And what we do as a church is we align ourselves off the word of God. Jesus Christ has called the word, the living word, but he's also given us his written word. Our vision statement says we are rooted in the word. We have a personal relationship with the living word, Jesus Christ. And then we have an abiding relationship where we study the scriptures, we draw from it. And as we do so, we are abiding and fruitful and reproduce what God calls us to do. As we look at Jesus Christ and being described as this cornerstone, he's also called the capstone. Sometimes it's known as the keystone. This thing that you see being lowered into place, that is the capstone. The capstone was the final part of the structure that that would put up an arch. And as this stone was settled into place, uh, all the other stones would then settle against it. And it would be the final and completing stone that would hold up the structure. And Jesus Christ is not just the beginning, but he is the end. He's called the Alpha and the Omega, the Greek letters for the alphabet. A for Alpha, Omega, the last letter, R letter, Z in the alphabet. He is the beginning and the end. And he's this when it comes to the church. Now, in the old days, when they would build a building this way, you see that scaffolding, kind of that half-moon structure that is underneath. What they would do when a structure was complete is this capstone was lowered into place. There was a test to test the structural integrity that was known as the trimble factor. And what they would do is the the supervising engineer, the, the chief architect, the builder, whoever it was that was responsible for the building, would stand underneath the scaffolding. And they would remove the scaffolding. And as the scaffolding was removed and as those stones began to settle in among themselves, the the architect or the chief engineer would often tremble (laughs) because he was standing underneath it. And if he had poorly designed the building, if the craftsmanship had been shoddy and not done, the, the entire structure could collapse in and kill the person. So you can understand why it was called the tremble factor. And as we think of Jesus Christ, what he wants the religious leaders and the others who have rejected him to know is that that stone that they have rejected, Jesus Christ himself, there is a day of judgment that is coming. And as you think of the tremble factor, there are those that will stand before Christ on judgment day who rejected him as the promised Messiah. And on that day, Jesus will not be their savior, but their judge. And he will say to those who rejected him, depart from me, for I didn't know you. And this is the picture that we have here. We've already been made a part of the family of God if we've come to faith in him, so we don't have to tremble. We were described as being part of that building, the church that God is building. And this is how it's described in in 1 Peter 2, verses 3 through 8. It says, "If if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord and coming to him as to a living stone, notice that, a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him, that is in Jesus Christ, shall not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you, who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. 
Jesus Christ is called the living stone. I want you to notice that as we talk about the stone that the builders rejected, Jesus wants us to know that the story is not over. The parable doesn't end with his rejection. The truth of the scriptures is that neither the story is over nor is the life of Jesus Christ over. Because as Jesus was rejected, as he was sent to the cross to be crucified, as he died on that cross, he was taken down, he was placed in a tomb, and a rock was rolled across the mouth of the tomb. And people looked at it and they said, he must not have been the Messiah. He must have been a pretender. He was a fake. This wasn't the Son of God. We had hoped for the Messiah, and I guess he wasn't it. But as we know, the story was not over. Because three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He came out of the tomb. He walked the earth for more than 40 days. He appeared to more than 500 witnesses, as we'll celebrate next Sunday. And then he ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, where he is waiting to return, to return as the rightful king. The book of Revelation tells us the story doesn't end with this parable, with the crucifixion of Jesus. Revelation eleven fifteen tells us, Then the seventh angel uh, sounded, and they were, there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has come. The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The word means Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. You see, they said, we reject you, Jesus. You are not going to be the king. But God says, oh, the story is not over. The king is coming back. And when he returns, he will come back as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And those who have received him will return with him to reign during that kingdom, the millennial kingdom, the thousand years here on the earth, and then with God through his eternal kingdom. Where this parable ultimately ends is with the rightful king on the throne. This is why in 1 Peter 2, 6, we were told, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. When Peter says that in the Greek text, it has a double negative, drives grammar teachers nuts. But it's u may, which means absolutely not. What Peter says is those who have received the Lord will never, ever be disappointed. Because you receive the rightful king, and you will reign with him. In verses 7 through 8 of that passage in Peter, he talks about Jesus being the rock. And he again quotes from the psalm that we see here in Matthew, which is Psalm 118. There he quotes from Psalm 118.22 as well as Isaiah 8.14 when he says, This precious value then is for you who believe, for the, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed." These same words show up in the book of Acts in, chapter, uh, in Acts chapter 4 and verses 7 through 11. Peter stood before the Jewish Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin. This was the court that when Jesus was on trial before his crucifixion, he stood before them and they rejected Jesus. And they sentenced him to death. And Peter comes back later. He stands before this same Supreme Court and he says, you guys missed it. You missed the Messiah. 
You were looking for a military Messiah. You wanted one who would come in and overthrow Rome, the the power that was occupying Jerusalem. You see the people when they were crying out to Jesus that day, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They said the general is here. He's going to bring together the armies. We're going to go and we're going to overthrow Rome. And yet Jesus came in that day and mounted not on a white stallion, which was a general's horse, a sign of victory. As you read about his second coming, he returns on that horse of victory. But he came in that day mounted on a donkey colt, a sign of peace, because he was the prince of peace. And what Jesus said is, the Messiah is here, but not for the kingdom that you think. You see, they rolled out their blueprints, they had their architectural plans, and they said, this is what it looks like. And God says, you're working off the wrong set of plans. I have the plan for the Messiah. I have the one who will come, who will come and give his life as the Christ, the Messiah dying on the cross. Because the, the, the Messiah that you need is one who will save you from your sins, not save you from Roman oppression. And as Jesus Christ came, as he gave his life, it tells us that those who have believed in him will be saved. And he is, he is the living stone, alive today, seated at the right hand of God, waiting to come back. And for all of us who have received him, we are told that we have been made living stones as well, built into this body called the church. Not just wayside, small C, but the universal church, big C. All believers in Jesus Christ throughout all the ages will be with God in heaven and will be with him in his eternal kingdom. But for those who reject him, they will be judged for failing to put their faith in him. This is how Jesus Christ becomes either the source of our salvation or the stone over which we stumble, as Peter told us. When he uses the words there, a stone of stumbling, it's a a translation of two Greek words. One is lithos, which means a a loose stone that's in the path. Have you ever been walking along down the road and you, you trip over a rock, stub your toe? Well, that's one description. That is a lithos. And then the other word is proskomatos, and this means to cut against. And it, it speaks of kind of like a big boulder that rolls down a hill and crushes somebody. And so together they mean an obstacle against, one which, against which one strikes and stumbles. In other words, what Jesus Christ is described as is the rock in the road that you cannot go around or avoid. Jesus is the rock in the road that you can't go around or avoid. You see, as you're sitting here today, you have to make a choice. You have to either receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, or you have to reject Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you may be sitting here this morning saying, well, Roger, I'm not ready to make a choice. Well, friends, you just made a choice. You just rejected him. You see, the Jews were being told, you have a choice today. The king has come. The Messiah is here. Will you receive him or will you reject him? And today you have a choice, friends. Will you receive him as the rightful king, the one who belongs on the throne of your life, giving him control of your life today? Saying, God, I've been running on my own road. I've been going down my own path. But today I realize I need to stop and I need to turn around. That's called repentance. And I need to come to you and accept you as the Messiah, as the rightful king of my life. The one who gave your very life so that I could have the gift of eternal life. Have you come to him? 
Have you received the foundation of your faith? The Messiah who was promised the rightful king, or have you rejected him? And said, I don't need Jesus. Or all roads lead to heaven. Friends, they don't. Jesus Christ said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's called the stone of stumbling. Because when you come to him, you have to make a choice. There, it divides the road into the, the narrow path that leads to heaven through the cross that Jesus provided, or the broad road the Bible calls destruction that leads to eternal separation from God in the place that we call hell. And the decision this morning for you is, will you receive him as the rightful king, or will you reject him? And as those who reject him, one day you will stand before him, and he will be the king of kings, and he will be the one in judgment. And for those who have received him, we will be home with him in heaven. For those who reject him, you will be rejected. So you have a choice this morning as to what you will do with him. And I pray your choice is to receive him as your savior, to accept his great gift of new life, the great gift of grace where he said, I came and I took your place and I died for you. And if you've never come to him, if you've never said, Jesus, I am a sinner, meaning I've made mistakes, I've fallen short of your standard of perfection. The Bible says when we do that, we owe a penalty of sin called death. And if you've sinned, if you've fallen short of God, you owe that penalty of death. And Jesus said, that is why I came, to be the Messiah, to be your Savior, to be the one to pay your penalty of death. And what the Scripture says is that if you will turn to him and say, God, I am a sinner, and I need you, Jesus, to be my Savior, then you will be saved. The choice is yours today. If you'd like to do that, I invite you now just to bow your heads with me. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. It's just your way of saying to God, today, God, I realize who you are. Jesus, that you are indeed the Son of God, the one sent to be my Messiah, to be my sacrifice, the one who would pay the penalty of sin that I owe. And today, Jesus, I'm turning from my sin, and I'm turning to you to be my Savior. If you'd like to do that, then just pray this prayer with me. It's your way of telling God that you're accepting his gift of grace. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. And as a sinner, I deserve the penalty of death. I realize, God, that I can't get to you by being good enough. Because I've sinned and I owe a penalty of death. And it is only based upon your grace, God, where you were willing to come. And be rejected. And go to the cross and pay my penalty. The penalty of death that I owed. I thank you, Jesus, that you died in my place. And I know, Jesus, the story wasn't over when they buried you in the tomb. Because you rose again in new life three days later. You showed that you were indeed the Son of God who conquered sin and death. And today, Jesus, I accept you as the Lord of my life, the one who has given me the gift of new life through your death and resurrection. Thank you for making me a part of the family of God. Thank you for inviting me out of my old way of life into the new way of life with you.
May I walk in it beginning this day forward. I pray these things in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer, you see prayer leaders at the front. I'll be here as well. Maybe you came with a friend or a family member. They'd love to hear that you just accepted Christ. We want to talk to you to help you take the next step in your new life. For the rest of us who have received the Lord of life, who know Jesus is indeed the true King of Kings, may we go into the world this week and tell our friends and neighbors, invite them to the Good Friday service where they'll hear the good news again. Come back next Sunday where we get to celebrate the news that the tomb was empty, that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.